Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. This week we are joined by Peter Scarrow. Peter practiced law in Vancouver from 1981 to 1991. He was the partner in charge of the Immigration Practice Group and Taiwan Representative Office of Bullhauser & Tupper, one of Vancouver's oldest law firms which is currently part of the global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. Peter was in charge essentially of setting up Bullhauser & Tupper's Taiwan office. He was also legal counsel to and director and shareholder of McDonald Realty Limited and legal counsel and executive director to the Hong Kong branch of LGT Bank a Swiss-style private bank based on and owned by the royal family of Liechtenstein. We discuss in this episode Peter's career, and Peter also provides observations that he has on Canadian immigration law, wealthy Asian investor immigration with a focus on Taiwan and mainland China, corruption, uh, immigration consultant fraud, predominantly ghost consultant fraud, just to be specific, Sam Cooper's book, Willful Blindness, which contains an immigration component, and Sam Cooper's book, for those who don't know, he's a journalist whose work and writings on money laundering in Vancouver arguably led to the Cullen Commission, which recently reported on money laundering in Vancouver. And Peter also provides his thoughts on the overall state of immigration law right now, as well as suggestions and tips for people starting out. This was one of the longer uh, conversations that we've had on borderlines, and I thought it was fascinating. If you're interested in what practicing immigration law was like in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, and especially if you practice immigration law now, it's always interesting to hear what it used to be like. And if you're also interested in the development of Asian investor immigration to Canada and specific issues that emerged during its uh, probably well, one of its peaks in the 1980s and 1990s, I'm sure you will too. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes. I hope you enjoy. Oh, and you'll note that in this episode, we, when the recording starts, we're talking about someone named Dave. This is Dave Thomas, who was the guest on our previous episode and who worked with Peter Scarrow at Bullhauser Tupper. Yeah, so you listened to the Dave Thomas one? I did. I did. I didn't know that you two used to work together. So did he work like as your associate in Taiwan? Um, I can't, I don't think Dave went to Taiwan much at all. I think we probably started at Bullhauser around the same time. Dave is an article student and I started as a, an associate. I had been recruited by the firm because they were expanding. They had a, they had a vision or plan to expand business into Asia. They already had a, the firm already had a, uh, an office in Hong Kong um, and was planning to set up an office in China. And I was recruited to help them out in, in Taiwan. And so the, the guys running the Hong Kong and Shanghai offices were already good personal friends that I'd known for many years. Mason Lowe ran the office in Hong Kong and we used to work together in the law students legal advice clinic in Chinatown back in the day. So 
So you started at Bullhauser in 81? I started in Bullhauser. No, I was called to the bar, I guess, in... I, I started articling in 81, called to the bar in September of 82. So I guess that makes it almost 40 years ago I was called. So you practiced at the Chinatown Clinic. Well, that, that, was, that was just a uh, sort of part-time gig arranged through UBC. There was a legal advice, pro law students free legal advice program. They huh. still have it. I think they do. But, yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, I don't know much about it now, but I understand that, you know, they have a, a sort of a, a group of uh, Mandarin-speaking law students who provide free legal advice. What other connections did you have to, like, Asia that Bullhauser would want you to help lead that initiative? I recall, see, I studied Chinese language as an undergrad. After I graduated, I had no idea what I was, what, what to do. I, so I worked for about a year for a Taiwanese trading company traveling all over U.S. and, and uh, the United States selling Taiwanese manufactured knickknacks and paddywhacks and all kinds of yeah. the stuff that Taiwan used to, used to produce back in the day before China was even on the radar screen. And I was recruited by a medium-sized Vancouver firm before I finished law school because they uh, thought they were going to be God's gift to the Asian legal practice uh, based on a practice they developed serving Japanese clients. And that was very innovative and lucrative for them. And the Japanese-speaking lawyer was a friend of mine from Asian Studies at UBC. And so he arranged for me to get articles before I was even started the interview program. I was also, at that time, I was, I was keen on working for a big law firm that would have the broad practice area and uh, scope to do all kinds of of work. And I had a couple of interviews with the partners from big law firms and told them that I thought that I was keen on developing a practice in Taiwan because I'd lived in Taiwan as a student for a couple of years yeah. uh, before finishing university. And I, I understand what was about to happen, but nobody in Vancouver did. And I sat down with the partners at Bullhauser, I recall, uh, guys who later on were to become my partners and said, well, I'm gonna, I'm keen on on developing a Taiwan practice that would include but not be limited to immigration. And the three guys, you know, they're 20 years older than I was at the time, or maybe more, sort of looked at me and it was kind of like talking to fish in a fishbowl. Their mouths were opening and closing, but they didn't, they they, they thought I was crazy, like uh. nobody had ever heard of. A Taiwan practice in Japan, yeah, uh, right. maybe China, because you had these big state-owned enterprises that were starting to tra travel abroad. But Taiwan, they didn't think it was a, as so, being a center of business that just wasn't on anybody's radar. Well, yeah, and you know, from the immigration perspective, back in those days, Taiwanese people not only required uh, visitors' visas to travel to Canada. But also, uh, it took them like it took it took uh, CIC about one or two months to process the visitors visa <laughs> applications, and the processing procedure included finding a this was mandatory finding a Canadian sponsor could be oh, a relative wow. or a friend 
and the sponsor had to go into the CIC office in Vancouver and have an interview. Wow. And so I did this once for my Taiwanese brother-in-law, and I had to wait for like two weeks to get an interview slot so I could go in. And I sat in the CIC office in downtown Vancouver and Alberni Street for about six hours. And the immigration officer came out and said, you're here for the Taiwanese guy, right? He's applying for it. Yes, my brother-in-law, he's like to come to Canada. He's 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 got a uh, he's got he he's got a, a budget to buy ten million dollars worth of computer junk to be recycled in Taiwan. The immigration officer said, "Oh, uh, okay. Uh, do you have your ID? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that was it. Like wow. six hours. So the this was at a time when the Taiwanese were immigrating en masse to the USA. And right. I understood Taiwan and I understood the US situation and the sense of sort of quiet desperation the Taiwanese had keen on leaving Taiwan because they were afraid of what might happen were China to move in and take over. Hmm. And so the, the timing was kind of perfect because uh, I finished law school and started articling and, and then practicing right around the time those visa requirements were being relaxed. Right. And back in those days, Chinese immigrants to Vancouver, that meant Hong Kong. Back in those days, it, it was a real novelty to hear somebody on the street speaking Mandarin. Almost oh. nobody spoke Mandarin back then. And, and I had already been, spent a lot of time in Taiwan and spoke decent conversational Chinese and discovered that there are only two or three other lawyers in town who could speak Mandarin. And they were mostly, I think back then, I think I was the only non-Chinese Mandarin speaking lawyer in the city. These days it's quite different. I think these days there are probably lots and lots of uh, smart young uh, lawyer, Chinese lawyers who speak perfect, fluent, colloquial Mandarin and English. Uh, so the competition, sorry. Steve, you speak. Uh... Yeah, I don't know if it's as well as uh, Peter, but yeah, I speak a fair bit of Mandarin. I don't use it in work almost at all. Uh, um, well, yeah, you see... I'm always surprised by the number of like white lawyers that speak Mandarin. It always is a little bit surprising to me. Well, um, the the proof is in the pudding, and there there I think you find lots of um, non Chinese lawyers who claim to be able to speak Mandarin. Not quite so many that can actually furnish legal services and take mm. instructions in, in, in Mandarin. I mean, the interesting thing to me when I started too was within two or three years of my being called to the bar, I had a pretty full practice that consisted of immigration, uh, conveyancing, doing some incorporation. And it was basically a, a solicitor's practice. But the driving engine behind it was immigration because you didn't have to go out and fight for clients that were already getting legal services from your competition. You, you're creating new clients as they came into Canada as, as immigrants. So Quite a number of differences then versus now. First of all, I think that there was not the immigration consultant presence then that there is today, which I think is a very big difference in terms of the nature of the industry. Yeah. Well, and, and especially... Uh, especially um, 
in the in the China in the greater China area and particularly in mainland China. Uh -huh. That's a whole topic that we might want to focus on a little bit here because the uh, yeah, I mean the the consultants were really huge in, both in Taiwan and mainland China in a way that they were not in Hong Kong. Those three jurisdictions. So the, first the consultants here in Vancouver as well. What program were you at in the like eighties? Were Taiwanese yeah. people using to immigrate? Yeah, that's the um, other big the big dynamic shift is that like there's not there wasn't really the temporary foreign worker program at all at that stage, was there? I I don't even remember it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, most of most of the work I was doing was with folks who were entrepreneurs. Hmm. Uh, there wasn't, I don't think there was any investor program way back then. There was a, an investor program later on, probably beginning in the mid to late, mid eighties, maybe. And, and I guess, you know, once the investor program started, that enabled the consultants to, to systematize things and start doing it in bulk. Uh, so there, there are other, there are other lawyers and consultants around. I remember one guy, uh, uh, what was his name? Iqbal Devji. He was a Ismaili, I believe, who I'm, whom I met at at Bullhauser, and he 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 had uh, sort of branch offices and representatives in about twenty different countries around the world, and he was constantly traveling and getting clients from everywhere. Whereas a lot of most of what I did was in one single sort of market area. That area being greater China for, for obvious reasons. So, and so you, so what year did you open the Taiwanese office for Bullhauser? That would have been around 1980, 88, maybe 87, 88. And were you the only lawyer on the ground starting an office in a new continent? No, because Bullhauser already had offices in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Okay. And so uh, and there are a couple of other Canadian firms in Hong Kong. Phillips and Weinberg, Eddie Rubin, uh, had had an office in Shanghai, in Hong Kong, for a long time. Um, Bullhauser's office in uh, Shanghai was opened by my partner Clive Ansley, now persona non grata in China. That's a whole other story. Bullhauser, in in a state of typical Canadian confusion, we thought we could go to China and would be God's gift to the Fortune 500 companies that were, were moving into China. And this was, this was at a time when China's economy was a little bit smaller than the economy of the province of Ontario, just to get a sense of it. Um, and it turned out that my partner, Clive, didn't do any big-time corporate work, or hardly any, because he was having great success as an admiralty lawyer because Bullhauser had an admiralty practice in Vancouver, and there weren't any foreign admiralty lawyers practicing on in China, and so he 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 got like ninety percent of the litigation work on the China coast in this esoteric practice yeah. area. Why is he persona non grata in China? There was a little bit of a dust up in China around June fourth, nineteen eighty nine, uh, three or four years after we set up the office there. You may recall that incident of yeah. some note here. It's not really discussed very much in China, even these days. And the upshot of that was uh, the firm was concerned that 
the legal system in China was going to break down and that China was backpedaling and it wasn't going to be the huge market that we had anticipated. And so Clive, it was decided that Clive would pull out, we would sh shut, keep the license. I think we kept the license, but shut the office down. And the Chinese lawyer that had been the backup and the guy who appeared in court, because we didn't actually have a law firm there, we had a consulting firm. That was the legal status of the entity that we had there. And so we retained it. We had been retaining a mainland Chinese admiralty lawyer. And the rumor was that he was going to be in big trouble because some of his political enemies were out to get him. So I think the firm brought him to Canada as a refugee or something. I didn't get involved in that. Anyway, I, this sort of straying off the, the immigration topic. But as it turned out, oddly, uh, at least from the perspective of Westerners, what happened after June 4th, uh, encouraged a lot of the Taiwanese to start investing in China because they saw the crackdown June 4th as a sign that the government was determined to have stability. And so that was the beginning of the stage where the Taiwanese manufacturers started to move their labor-intensive manufacturing businesses out of Taiwan and into, into China. You must have also noticed an uptick in interest on immigrating to Canada. Yeah, it was already pretty strong. Uh, back, I would think, in the mid, the, the late 70s, I guess, was a, when Hong Kong immigrants started to come in large numbers. By the late 70s, early 80s, Hong Kong clearly was the number one source country of business immigrants to Canada. Uh, but a few years after that, Taiwan caught up to Hong Kong. And so there were these two markets Taiwan and Hong Kong, generating a big flow of business immigrants to Vancouver. That was back in the day when people were complaining about monster houses. There's still complaints about the Chinese participation in real estate here, but ugly houses without any aesthetic features are not as much part of the conversation now as they used to be. So the Taiwan market, well, interestingly, the Taiwan market and the Hong Kong market both collapsed around the time of the 1997 handover. And they collapsed for different reasons. Hong Kong, because, you know, the, 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 of, the, of the handover. Taiwan, because I think, I think we'd started to run out of wealthy people who were keen on coming to Canada. There weren't so, quite so many, uh, number one. And number two, there were some problems with a couple of the big Taiwanese immigration consulting firms who were suspected of preparing fraudulent documents. And there are problems too with the bureaucracy. One senior immigration officer was found to have been secretly in business with one of the biggest immigration consulting companies in Taiwan. And at some stage there, the Taiwanese, all of the Taiwanese that had been interviewed had to go back and be interviewed again. And that was during a time when all of the family members, including babies, had to be present at the interview in, in the visa office. And when you could send your clients to any visa office anywhere in the world. So it so happened that a visa officer whom, just as an example, a guy who I think he had been in uh, Manila, which is close to Taiwan and convenient to travel to. And, and I was sending many of my clients to Manila because I found this person to be 
business-like, reasonable, sensitive to cultural differences, etc. An interesting, an interesting guy. I kind of and think he moved I know to who Chile. you're talking about. I think I know who you mean. Is it uh, Michelle? Uh, no, maybe not. I can't. I can't. Michelle Dupuis? Is that what he, who it was? Could, it could be. I can't yeah. remember the name, name yeah. anymore. Yeah. He, 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 uh, he, he moved to Santiago, Chile. Yeah, I feel like it's the same guy. And he had done a stint at Case Management Branch in Ottawa as well. Okay. He was really stellar there as well. Well, his, his I, I, I recall um, his philosophy in the Philippines was, I know these guys are evading taxes. Hmm. Uh, but in order to do that, they have to pay big bribes, and the bribes they pay are probably about equal to the tax <laughs> they pay in Canada. Just and, like a common sense approach. <laughs> and, and so, you know, they understand there's a there's a cost, there's this extra cost associated with with, with doing with doing business. And just incidentally, there's another uh, visa officer. I, I shouldn't mention the visa office but her philosophy vis-a-vis -vis Taiwanese clients was they're all inadmissible hmm. because they're all tax evaders and therefore they're in that category of person who is likely to commit yeah. criminal offenses in Canada they're criminally inadmissible this approach I'm familiar with. <laughs> well, well, well. I, I had about a dozen. I had about a dozen files in that visa office, and I immediately withdraw, withdrew all of them, and sent them to another visa office. Yeah. So just the fact that you were able to pick and choose visa offices sounds yeah. very different from today. Like, how did that work? I can't. It, it was like that for a long time. Even I, I think it was just based that. on the legislation. The legislation yeah. said you can you can submit your application. It has to be handled out of a visa office, but it didn't specify which one. So they didn't they didn't divvy it up. It was something yeah. like any place that you were entitled to travel to, like you could be as long as you could be in that place. That's how, yeah, without, that right. yeah, without a visa, you could apply in that visa office. There were some rules about whether you could go there on your passport. Um, I remember there being some um, some looseness about it for sure. Um, I remember being able to, to a certain degree, to being able to venue shop, um, and so the, and then they just absolutely shut that down. Well, the the unpleasant part of it was with the folks that I had been sending to Chile. Uh, I had half a dozen files in there, and because of the problems that had cropped up in Taiwan, I think associated with the senior visa officer who was uh, moonlighting as uh, a shill for the immigration consulting firm. They wanted to re-interview all of the Taiwanese application applicants. And so I had, a, I had one Taiwanese family and the five members had to get on a plane and fly back to yeah. Santiago, Chile. Yes. I paid to have another interview. And it was, you know, if it, it, it's, it's not easy to explain to clients what's going on when that sort of thing occurs. Yeah. And yeah, what did the I programs did. actually look like? Like you dealt mainly with entrepreneurs, investors as well? Um, like how did the yeah, programs entrepreneurs, actually work? I think by then there were there, there were entrepreneurs, skilled workers. Uh, I think investor program was had come out around that time. The original investment amount of the investor program was $150,000. And there were, briefly there were uh, 
sort of provincial nominee type applications called family businesses. And also there was a retirement category. Hmm. Uh, Folks, you had to be over the age of 55 or 65 or something. And what, um, you just had to want to retire and spend money here? Uh, you, had, you, had to have a, you had to have a significant net worth. You had to intend not to work in Canada, be admissible in all other respects. And it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty simple. That would have been quite popular. Uh, that was very popular and there, uh, for, for a while. Um, do, do you want a quick anecdote about one of our... Yeah, sure. Yeah, please. <laughs> Now this has got nothing. To, this was not a Chinese application. Bill Caffel and I. Bill Bill Caffel, uh, Deanna, do you know who I'm talking about? Steve, no. you know, right? Bill Caffel. No. Oh, okay. When I, when I started, I, I'd been working at Bullhauser for maybe a year or two, and uh, I, I had a pretty full pretty full docket of uh, immigration files. And I wasn't a very good immigration lawyer, to be frank. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anybody around me teaching me anything. Everything I did, I had to learn by myself, kind of. And I used to go to Chinatown still to drum up business on occasion and give lectures. And uh, I started to invite uh, this senior immigration officer from downtown who I had sent files to for various things. And we'd become kind of friends. And uh, he'd come along and give the immigration office's perspective when I was giving the lectures down in Chinatown. And uh, so I persuaded Bullhauser and Tupper to hire him. And so he sort of was the real authority on immigration law inside the firm. And Dave Thomas was working with us at at the time. And we got this uh, wonderful client from Switzerland, the, the kind of cute little Swiss businessman with sparkling blue eyes and a, a friendly, warm smile, and he was probably about mid to late 60s, and had immigrated to Canada years previously to work for an international lumber company, and was here for two or three years, and then they posted him to Brazil and then Indonesia, and he moved all, all around the world, but he always wanted to come back to Canada. So after he retired, he had uh, an interview with the Canadian embassy in Switzerland, passed his immigration interview, went out to celebrate with his friends, drank too much wine, got into a car accident. Nobody was hurt, but he immediately became criminally inadmissible Uh. (laughs) as a a result of the celebration. Came to us and said, you know, um, we've got a, I got this problem here. What do we do? And so Bill and I sat down and Bill said, well, look, here's what you, here's what you should do. You managed to get into Canada this time, even though they said you were criminally inadmissible, you managed to return. Why don't you just, he, oh, and he'd spent a million dollars to buy a ranch up in the Caribou, his little sort of Caribou Swiss Disneyland. He just loved this place. He was a, his wife had died, his kids had grown up, and he, he wanted to spend the rest of his life as a farmer in the Caribou. And so Bill said, well, you, know, you can probably hang out there for a few years and worst they can do is kick you out and sure enough he stayed there for two or three years and one day an immigration officer showed up at his door and said here's a checkout letter you've got 24 hours to leave town what he came to us and said what do I do now and so we spent two or three days buffing him up telling you know getting him to tell the whole story uh, except the checkout letter which he, I don't think he was under an obligation voluntarily to disclose that he went to the United States, did a flagpole, came back, and he had 
a whole album of pictures of his farm and the caribou and all this kind of stuff and managed to persuade them at the port of entry that he'd, his travels notwithstanding, that he'd always retained an intention to return to Canada and therefore was a returning resident. They went to visit him from the visa office in Kamloops one more time and then phoned us up and said, you beat us. He's, he's, he's a, he was admitted at the POE as a returning resident and that was the decision that had been made and we can't overturn that decision. So he's, he's back in Canada. I don't know what happened to him, but... Uh, <laughs> Just to go back to Asia, did you notice a difference between like the expectations or treatment of Hong Kong nationals, Taiwan, or mainland China? You mean by the visa offices? Yeah. Or even in how your practice shifted, because I assume at some point it went from Taiwan to mainland China. Well, yeah, I just started, mainland China just started as a source country of business immigrants when I was kind of leaving the practice, because I, I, I left Bullhauser in 1991. So I, I you know, I'd practiced, basically, I, I continued on doing immigration work with Bullhauser, sort of as an outside consultant, but I, I became kind of a business person around around 91 in the real estate in the real estate business but bill cathel continued to do the work in bohauser dave thomas was doing his career thing clive ansley had moved we shut the shanghai office down clive ansley in 89 uh, moved to taiwan and he was living permanently in taiwan and he was he generated some really big files in taiwan he he got you know, one file representing a company that bought a 50% interest in the Expo lands. That was probably a multi-hundred million dollar investment. And from China, we, at one stage, we represented, I won't mention the specific name, but it was one of China's largest state-owned enterprises and the largest enterprise in terms of its outbound investments in this state-owned enterprise had invested uh, $500 million in a pulp mill in a joint venture basis with Power Corporation. So we did the, the work there. The Taiwanese file where they bought half of the Expo lands, that kept us busy. And a lot, and that, to some extent, was driven by immigration. And, and there were also big immigration components. For example, the mainland Chinese state-owned enterprise. There were about a dozen other subsidiary enterprises using the same brand that came around the same time. And they all required executive transferee visas. In the long run, they were, these are senior communist bureaucrat business people who ultimately managed to qualify as business immigrants to Canada. So there's all of that interesting, uh, interesting spin-off business. I, I think the first mainland Chinese business immigration file I handled would have been maybe the early 90s when I'd already left Bullhauser and I just took this file as a, as a, as a learning experience. And that was kind of interesting because the, the, the client in question had, his, his business was running the tuck shop, like the little retail store at a university in a third tier city in China. That was, uh, I think that there was a requirement that the applicants have a minimum net worth of 800, equivalent to 800,000 Canadian dollars. And his main asset was a thing called a Changbao contract, Changbao Shu, which is, in his case was a, a two-page handwritten agreement to run the retail store. <laughs> and so he had the financial statements linked to, to his financial performance doing that. He, had, he just barely scraped by. We, we got uh, accountants both here in Canada and in China to do a valuation of this little 
proprietorship, the only evidence of which was a two-page handwritten contract. And uh, to my astonishment, he passed. They they bought the the whole notion, and and he turned he turned it in, in China and in Taiwan. Companies don't have the um, they can in, in most common law jurisdictions a, a corporation generally has uh, can, can engage in the same scope of business that a natural person could. And but in China in Taiwan there's a scope there's a scope of business it's limited, and part of his business included the right to. Uh, sell construction materials. And after he immigrated to Canada, he turned the construction material portion of his uh, business license into a huge enterprise wherein he was the subcontractor to finish the interiors of all of the people's construction banks of China branches throughout Manchuria, hundreds of branches. The last time I saw him in China, he'd gone into the shipping business and owned 50 freighters. Yeah. So he, this, this guy starting off running a tuck shop at a university ends up as a shipping international shipping magnet. You'd mentioned the Chinese Communist Party. Like, Were there any concerns or efforts that Canada's immigration department seemed to put into making sure that, you know, like determining whether membership in that party would result in inadmissibility, because it seems to have become a concern lately. I don't know if you've read Sam Cooper's book on uh, titled Willful Blindness. He gets into like just whether there's, you know, just the number of Chinese Communist Party members that may be in Canada. It, it, it starts to feel a little bit like 1984, you know, and in other words, uh, Big Brother everywhere is watching, and you've got these different states getting into geopolitical conflicts. So China has gone through a few iterations. China's back now as uh, the adversary. Mm -hmm. Back in the day when Bill Hauser had the office in China, um, the, the international relationship seemed to be on, on the mend. I think that might have been around the time that China was working with the U.S. in monitoring the military activities and policies of uh, Russia and had joint operations in, in uh, Xinjiang province in eastern China. But I, th I think they were always interested in, like CIC was always interested in knowing if people were members of the Communist Party. And I believe that's always been something that requires disclosure on the application documents. It's like that today, isn't it? Yeah, it's still like that. I think whether membership in that party results in someone being inadmissible is unclear. Yeah. Likely to evolve in the future. Yeah, I think that's the way it always, it always used to be. Um, there have been numerous occasions when I wearing other, other hats, bearing in mind that I didn't do all that much business immigration work directly with the clients from, from China. The, the consultants did the bulk of that. And there have been umpteen occasions where I've been invited to meet one of, by, by a consultant, one of their clients. And so I go into the meeting and, uh, you know, this is Madam so-and-so from uh, Udumuchi. I'm just making that up. It's not Udumuchi, but. Yeah. 
and uh, I, I'm doing my due diligence on her as a say as a private banker, uh, and started asking her about the business. The consultant, she's 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 uh, obviously not that knowledgeable about business. And the consultant says, oh, just hold on a sec. Actually, she's the local party secretary, but, you know, don't tell anybody that. And I'm thinking, wow, how did she get here? And, you know, she got here because some visa officer someplace decided she was okay. And whether CSIS or other people know about that, I, I don't really know. But I think there are indeed, as Sam Cooper's of this world suggests, uh, a lot of folks who uh, are, are party members and have Canadian status. That doesn't mean, incidentally, that I think there are 80 million, 100 million party members in China. It doesn't mean that they're all hardcore enemies of liberal democratic society. And in fact, a lot of them, the party membership is a cover for being able to do business. So they are legitimate business people who happen to be members of be members of the party, which is a prudent thing to be uh, for enterprising young man or woman. I don't know is that a response to your question, Steve? Or? Yeah. On a related <clears throat> note, the termination. Like right now, there is no federal entrepreneur program. There's no federal immigrant investor program. I think Quebec's is suspended. Do you think, you know, like those programs are from a different era? Should they be brought back? Um, obviously, the previous Harper government thought very negatively of them. There were rumors, or I know people, you know, some immigration lawyers were hoping the liberals would bring them back. There doesn't seem to be an appetite for that. As like someone who, you know, practiced immigration law during that era, do you, can you see those types of applications in Coming back in 2022, 2023. I'm, I'm, of, I'm of two minds. Uh, and Steve, I, I believe that politically you and I are probably at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of some ideas. Because uh, I think, like David Suzuki, I think David Suzuki's right. Canada's already overshot carrying capacity. We've already got too many people and we shouldn't be admitting anymore. And the idea of admitting another or Canada having a population of 100 million is from logically, I think, utterly preposterous. But on the other hand, take that hat off and put on my businessman economist hat. I understand why immigration would likely be uh, a good thing. I can see why the admission of all these Chinese folks to Vancouver has given many areas of industry and commerce in this city, a, a huge boost. I understand all of that too. So I don't come down anywhere in particular. I'm just another guy trying to earn a living and put, uh, put food on the table. But I think in, in, in the long run, maybe even in the short run, the agenda is gonna be determined by environmental and climatological, meteorological issues. And that's, that's gonna drive what, what happens here. And uh, I, have to, I have to be careful about what I say here. Yeah, why don't we just leave it at that? I would say, I mean, China has been a, a, a challenging question from an immigration standpoint in the sense that it's not, it's not many regions where you have both 
an investor, a skilled worker, a temporary foreign worker, and a refugee producing country all within the same region. <laughs> and, um, and there's also, I mean, some of the greatest fraud cases have come out of that, um, that region as well. And so from a policy standpoint, um, it has been quite a difficult, um, you, you know, the, the kind of the saying that um, tough cases make bad law. I think that this really does speak to that. Um, and so, you know, wherever you get in terms of your global approach to, um, you know, to, to immigration settlement, you know, it does definitely present some, some serious challenges in that sense, because, um, you know, the way that immigration, I think, tends to come at social policy is like, we've talked a lot on this show about like, anybody trying to apply for something from Africa, there's like this approach that like, oh, you're going to come and you're going to be an overstay risk. And there are certainly issues from that, but it's very difficult to typecast um, China. And I think that's sort of to Steve's question of like, is there a difference in approach when you're applying from Hong Kong versus when you're applying from mainland China? Like, it's just not possible for the visa officers to typecast. I mean, there has been a lot of like, you're coming from anywhere in China, this must be a fraud case. You know, I think there's been a fair bit of that. And we've certainly seen that. You even referred to it in terms of um, the Taiwanese applications that you saw on that sort of presumption does seem to be there in a lot of the visa office processing, a presumption of fraud. Um, but I think, um, you know, this, like, it, again, it's just, there's a lot coming at people because I think, um, particularly right now, a lot of people, there's a lot of, like, it's, it's not like a lot of um, countries where the main drivers are uniform within a particular population, the, the drivers that are bringing people to Canada from China, whether you're talking about mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, like they're so diverse that you cannot, it's not a homogeneous population in that sense. Um, some people may be political refugees, some of them may be economic, um, some of them are ba basically coming here in order to create a landing space for children, but actually know that they'll be able to earn more back in China. And so there's just all of these different things that I think have made for a very mixed up immigration policy. And that has like, um, and Ended up, I don't know. I, I don't know if either of you have any reaction to those just being my comments about, um, you know, that that confusion in terms of what has caused the the um, sort of cacophony of different policies that have come out of that region. I I think you've hit it hit the nail right on the head. It's it's a, it's a dog's breakfast of objectives that these these folks have. Mm -hmm. um, inc incidentally, a few of the most rewarding files I've worked on were refugee files. Mm -hmm. The first one featuring a guy who for two or three years got his main protein by eating the maggots out of the dung from the cattle that he was looking after in, I think it was Ningxia province in, in China. Mm -hmm. uh, as for the question of fraud, I would suggest that the majority of business immigrants from greater China, ir irrespective of which part of greater China, the majority are pretend immigrants. The main goal being as one visa officer so eloquently put it, 
to use Canada as a dumping ground for spouses and children. And I think the, he probably meant female spouses because that's been the pattern where the principal applicant, the best qualified member of the family, often being the husband who's run the business and who has no intention of actually immigrating. Now, whether that's, is that immigration fraud? I guess it, I guess it is. Hmm. As a real estate conveyancing lawyer in Vancouver, when I didn't have my immigration lawyer hat on, you know, I get a call from a client who would come in and it would be a, a often a woman in her you know, 40s and 50s who'd uh, come as an immigrant. And I said, well, are you, uh, how, did you, how did you get here? I mean, because it was obvious to me that she had no business experience. And oh, I, I, uh, I came as an investor. I said, well, did you run a business? No. Well, how did you manage to pass the interview? He said, oh, Mr. So-and-so, who in some cases was the visa officer who'd gone into partnership. <laughs> now, Mr. So-and-so made it all up. It, it was all a complete, the, the business and everything was a, a complete uh, fabrication. Hmm. So there are issues like that. And I, I've been given to understand, I don't have any direct evidence of this, but I've heard the stories. And generally the stories, the reality turns out to be worse than the stories in many cases. Um, where for a period of time, maybe several years, the Quebec office in Hong Kong had been uh, infiltrated by an enterprising immigration lawyer or consultant who were basically had control of visa issuance there. <clears throat> and I heard that uh, they had to send some folks from, was it, CSIS or the Mounties or somebody in to clean it all up. Hmm. And then there's the, the other uh, visa officer in Beijing who I think had issued visas to hundreds of applicants who's, uh, who'd, who'd failed their interviews. And he had a partner outside the, the visa office, a consultant outside the visa office, and he would feed them information about unsuccessful interviewees and his partner would contact him and say, I can help you get your, I realize you just had an unsuccessful interview in connection with your application for immigration to Canada. I know I, I, got, I got a way to take care of this and it'll cost you X number of dollars. And when that was discovered, he disappeared. And wow. that was the end of that. And so there, there were times when I, as an immigration practitioner was thinking, I'm, I'm not really sure whether my client's applications are being decided by a government official who's actually secretly my competitor. <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I gotcha. Well, I haven't done any, I, I don't do any business immigration in terms of we're bringing in the initial applicants, but I have dealt a lot of those families that were brought in by the absent principal applicant. And many of them have like you know, they've grown up here, um, they've established themselves, you know, and while the absentee parent might be gone, like Canada is the only home they've ever known. And so, uh, you know, um, in terms of being able to try and maintain status for those family members, um, that's where I have seen some of the, the other side of this and those cases can be quite compassionate. And so, um, 
you know, again, this just goes into the quagmire of <laughs> why this policy can be very challenging. Now they've pretty much ended the, um, the entrepreneur and investor avenues to come into Canada, but uh, there's still this very long legacy of these, uh, these dependents who have come in as part of this, uh, these legacy programs that, um, you know, uh, those are challenging. Well, I think, I think now when you talk about, um, well, I guess this applies generally to applicants irrespective of the country of origin, but Mm -hmm. our, 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 a lot of our future immigrants, I sense, are going to be drawn from the pool of uh, young people who come here as foreign students. Is that yeah. uh, fair? Sort of. <clears throat> I mean, it's hard to say. For economic migrants, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very hard to know right now with um, the way that Express Entry is running. Like, it's, I feel like we're in a bit of a... Um, like, I don't know exactly where Express Entry is going. They, they've stopped it for a long period of time. They've reopened it right now, but the score is so high that pretty much you need employer support from within Canada in order to get an invitation to apply for permanent residency. So whether that's going to be the young people who are doing that or whether or not it's going to be more established in the labor market kind of um, uh, skilled workers, I'm not really sure. But um, like the cutoff mark on the first express entry draw was at 557 or something like that, wasn't it, Steve? And so um, to me, that that's going to be um, invariably people that have some sort of employer support or an employer specific work permit almost exclusively. But, um, you know, it's going to be hard to get there without that. So so does that mean I'm allow me to speculate for a minute because I'm not really involved in the process anymore, but mm -hmm. um, the one of the criteria will be work experience in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is there then a little cottage industry in the community of consultants wherein the, the applicants are paying uh, consultants or employers to find them jobs? Yeah, it's, um, yeah. Sure. I don't know what percent it is, um, but it definitely is an issue. <clears throat> yeah. And the thing about it is that um, students who get postgraduate work permits, they get the year of Canadian work experience and they get points for that, but they don't get any points for arranged employment because they're doing that work on an open permit. So it's whether or not that score is going to be high enough to get them over that mark. Um, it might be that they need to get either an employer specific work permit or a provincial nomination in order to beat, unless the score comes down. But the problem is there's such a backlog of people in the queue that have accumulated over the last year uh, because there were people just like throwing themselves into the pool, waiting for the draws to begin again, that there's like you know, something like 200,000 people just sitting in the express entry pool. I think there's about 50,000 of them above 450 points, you know, so it's, uh, you know, they're, they're going to need a real good solid score in order to be able to get an invite. And so, um, you know, it, it just, it pushes the envelope in terms of what they require in order to get there. Well, just, again, here's some anecdotal observations. I, I lived on Vancouver Island recently for about four years. I would say about 80% of the uh, young folks employed in service industries in Victoria, ones that I encountered at least were immigrants. Many of them from many of them from China, probably even more from 
from India. And I found most of them to be uh, <clears throat> intelligent, competent, presentable, hardworking uh, young, young folks who, for the most part, seemed intent on being real immigrants. So yeah, I think the emphasis on Canadian work experience is leading to a big decrease in the number of people who come here and just go back. I don't know about that. I mean, that's my concern about young, young people, like the emphasis on youth to me is a bit concerning in the sense that like young people, they're only here for a bit. Like, I just don't know that they're committed to staying in a place, you know? Yeah. I think maybe I'll read like if they're, I'll put it this way then, if they're leaving, it's not because as Peter was saying, that they always just intended to dump family here to go back to a well-paying job wherever they're from. Mm. But because either housing is too expensive to afford here or they're not able to get the job that they had hoped and there's a better job back home and more just the Canadian dream didn't materialize the way they had hoped. I mean, certainly one thing that there's a huge influx right now is Americans who want an alternative passport. I mean, that is like a lot of people that are like, the US just does not feel stable. They want to have the possibility to relocate to Canada, you know, where they can put their kids in a school that feels safer. That's something that I'm seeing with like crushing uh, volume. Um, and, you know, whether or not they actually intend to move is kind of like, maybe, maybe not, but they want to have that option. Um, but I just find with the real young, you know, entry level, just out of school, they want to have the option of being able to settle in Canada, but whether or not they're actually, a lot of them, I find they're already looking at another place. By the time they get their PR card, they're concerned about maintaining residency obligations. So I don't know. I mean, that has been a main driver with express entry is youth. And I just, I personally wonder whether it's ill-founded, whether or not those people are going to, you know, um, try and qualify for citizenship, but not have a really long standing vested interest in remaining Canada over the long term, because they're just, they're young, they're just exploring still, they haven't figured out where they want to be. Um, what, how, how recent has the influx uh, of Americans been going? since Trump basically. And it sort of took a bit of a, like it sort of relaxed a little bit when uh, when Biden was elected. And then since this, like, you know, the never ending mass shootings, um, it just it just went up like crazy uh, over the last year, I would say. I don't think actually many will stay, or yeah, I don't think many percentage wise will stay to immigrate. You noted that there are a lot of people from India that's probably been one of the big stories of the past 10 years has been the decline of China as a source country and the rise of India. Well, yeah, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting one. They used to be running sort of neck and neck for several years. I, I was looking at the stats for foreign students, not immigrants necessarily, but that's kind of a, a barometer of what the general immigration trends might be. And as I recall, 33% of the foreign students from India, 28% from China, whereas the two of them used to be about 30-30. Yeah, and yeah. India would be higher if it weren't for the astonishingly high refusal rate of temporary residence applications out of, um, out of the visa offices in India. Well, and see, China is going to be an interesting, well, China and India are both interesting for, well, they could be similar reasons. Uh, 
climate and environmental degradation has become a, a big issue in, in China. So mm. Both, a lot, like, like, like you're saying, a lot of these folks, their, their intention, the young people, their intentions may not be fixed. And where uh, several years ago, the, the goal would be come get an education here and maybe become a citizen, but then go back to China, particularly if the, the family has, has a business there. But given the political changes that have occurred in China, the increasingly serious climate-related problems, the fact that the country from one end to the other has been contaminated with industrial effluent, mm-hmm. yeah. all of these things to me suggest that, uh, like it or not, for reasons related to geography and these other factors, Canada is an increasingly attractive place to be simply because we're geographically distant from the world's trouble spots. We have a small population with a vast area um, and places for people to move in the long run, like Baffin Island, <laughs> yeah. uh, if, it gets, if it gets really bad. And I'm, I was just watching the news out of Europe uh, this morning. Uh, I was so shaken by that that I mm-hmm. wasn't sure whether I wanted to talk to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's astonishing. In terms of those numbers, I pulled up some stats. So like you can see just the different trends in terms of number of new permanent residents by country of citizenship. So just looking Mm. at 2015 and 2019, you have China go from 19,000 to 30,000. India go from 40,000 to 86,000. Wow. And the Philippines dropped from number one at 51,000 to 28,000, which- Well, I imagine that that has a lot to do with the, the total disappearance of the of caregiver, caregiver program. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were talking about consultants a bit earlier. I had a theory that part of the decline was that if you looked at the Indian immigration consultant market, it seemed to consist of people whose business model was to try to attract as many people as they could as possible into whatever program fit. Whereas for mainland China, it was predominantly people who were trying to get investors and large commissions that those investor files provided. Mm -hmm. And there was not the same expertise or focus on other programs such that when those programs were terminated, just the immigration consulting market was behind what the uh, consultants who focused on India were doing. I don't know, you mentioned that you had experience like with the mainland Chinese immigration consulting business, what you saw. Well, another another anecdote, back around the year 2000, when I was at a very advanced age, commencing a career as a private banker, uh, my territory was China and Taiwan from a base in Hong Kong. And I would do cold calling I'd look at the newspaper back in the day when people read newspapers uh, and look for immigration consultants and just cold call them. And I met a group of young people who were just starting out in their immigration consulting business, very modest, uh, modest business enterprise, et cetera. Right now, they, they, uh, they have probably 10 or 20 offices in China, offices around the world. They employ several hundred people. Um, they approached me a couple of years ago asking if I would agree to be their solicitor of record for purposes of submitting the immigration applications 
their, particularly their investor category applications. This was at a time when the kickbacks from the banks on the investor category were about $100,000 per, per client. I said, well, how many, uh, how many investors are you guys doing these days anyway? And they said, well, it's probably about 100 to 150 a year. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, those are big volumes. What do you propose to pay me? This is when I was still a member of the Law Society. So they said, well, we'll, uh, we'll pay you $45 per client. And I said, well, that's, that's a lot of work. You're doing a lot of paperwork. You have to do a bit of due diligence. have to meet the clients. No, oh, no, no, you don't understand. You don't, you don't really have to do anything at all. You just have to appear as this solicitive record. In fact, you don't even have to sign it yourself. We can get somebody else to sign for you if you give us permission. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like the greatest deal. Uh, and uh, thanks a lot, but no, I don't think we'll go for that. But they're getting paid a $100,000 commission on, say, 100 applications. Do the math on that and then assume you're able to run that kind of business for three or four years at the very least. And then assume that you're making an equal, if not much greater amount of money on American EB-5s together with investor programs, esoteric ones, like buying people passports from St. Kitts, Nevis, uh, et cetera. So these folks now, I think, the principles of the business, they sort of moved away from immigration. I think they have their own hedge fund and they're, I would, I would think, just doing the basic math on it, they are probably, I don't know, they probably made at least $100 million, I would think. I think that your point, though, Steve, about that, uh, the demand for that work and the, the way that the business model worked, I think the same could be said of the consultants from the Philippines, where they were very, very much focused mm-hmm. on caregiver programming. And when those programs really went the way of the dodo, the LMIA-based work permit to caregivers abroad, the LCP, all that kind of stuff, um, you know, it just, it really hit them hard because, um, you know, the options just dried up. Yeah. Did you like, I was trying to look up the name to see if uh, there'd been charges or anything about the visa officer moonlighting as a consultant in Taiwan. Did you know a lawyer named Martin Pillsmaker? I, I never met him, but I certainly know who you're talking about and what happened to Martin Pillsmaker at the end. It was a very sad, very sad uh, case. I can't figure out what he did. So all the, there's a bunch of articles Martin that say. He... Yeah, his, his, his business model, as I understand it, and, and incidentally, I mean, he was working with a, with a big white shoe Toronto law firm. I, I think, wasn't he? You I, check that out. It's very, it's kind of interesting. It's the sort of firm, as I recall, that Canadian prime ministers go to after they've finished their political careers. Yeah. But um, he was, he, he was famous for being a really successful, in terms of financially successful immigration lawyer. But it turned out, I believe, that a major component of his practice was manufacturing fraudulent indicia of residence in Canada in order to enable his clients to retain their uh, immigration status and perhaps uh, apply for citizenship. That's the same business model, I think, that was being adhered to by Sonny uh, Sunny, Sunny Wang. The, Sunny Wang, yeah. 
the Chinese consultant out of Richmond who mm-hmm. was engaged in industrial scale immigration fraud. So is and Martin Sonny, Martin Pillsmaker, I believe, committed suicide. Yeah, it said. I'm just reading these articles that uh, as he was about as they. I mean, they didn't. So the articles were vague on what he did, but it just said it was a massive immigration scandal in the 80s involving an immigration lawyer, yeah, who committed suicide facing 50 immigration charges. So it was fake residency documents similar I to... I think so, yeah. Oh. I mean, there, there may, have been other, may have been other stuff. My, my recollection from the news reports was that CIC got clued in because 50 or 60 recent... Uh, immigrants who shared the same address, a modest condo in downtown Toronto, turned out to be owned by his secretary or something. Yeah. Uh, Going back to Sam Cooper in his book, he strongly insinuates in a lot of cover your ass type language, but cover strongly insinuates that in the late 80s, organized crime may have infiltrated Visa, the visa office in Hong Kong was that ever over at the know. time? Or? I, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about that. It wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me. And other other strange stuff has has happened. Remember the the Chinese uh, smuggler, Mister Lai, who was in Canada uh, illegally for five or six years and the government finally managed to deport him to China. Do you yeah. remember that? Well, uh, what happened? I, I, I believe he, now this didn't involve the Canadian visa office, mind you, but he, he managed to get a, a forged Hong Kong passport, I think it was, from the Hong Kong authorities. And that's what enabled him to gain entry to, to, uh, to Canada. And then I think there was a young woman who was the daughter of a senior Hong Kong immigration official who right around that time was killed because someone shot a crossbow bolt through her heart as in a parking lot in Burnaby. Are you remembering this or did you recently read the book? No, no, yeah, this I, is I'm, all I'm in, remembering, I'm yeah, remembering this is all some in, uh, stuff. And I was trying to, trying to put two and two together because around the same time, the floor in the Hong Kong Immigration Department that was responsible for issuance of the type of travel document that this guy used to get into Canada burned, burned up. The, the, the office itself caught fire and burned, destroying all the files. The visa office? The visa office. No, well, no, it wasn't the visa. This wasn't the Canadian office. This is a Hong Kong office that, that was responsible for issuing Hong Kong documents. And so this guy, Mr. Lai, I, I'm not trying to allege any specific malfeasance on his part necessarily. He, he, he well, he, he, was, he was guilty of uttering a fraudulent document, misrepresentation on entering Canada, probably smuggling in China. He, see, he, con- he controlled all of the, uh, the customs bureau in 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 Fujian province i think he was he was thereby able to assist his 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 cohorts in evading 2 billion us a year in customs duties in other words 
you got to sell all these foreign goods <clears throat> in China for the same for market prices, and he and he and his pals were the ones that earned the the, the difference. But uh, he lived in Burnaby for like under house arrest for several years. Yeah, he was Daryl Larson's uh, client. That was all going on right around when I started practicing that um, Daryl was representing him in his deportation. And I think it had a very bitter end. Well, um, and I think Clive, Clive Ansley got involved. My former partner, Clive Ansley, got involved with that as an expert witness, assisting Daryl Larson on that one, I, th I think. Yeah, I think you'd like Sam Cooper's book. He draws this connection. And again, it's, it's like he's connecting there's dots and whether the connections make sense is unclear, but he connects the murder of the person in Burnaby with that crossbow as being a message to a visa officer at the embassy or the high commission in Hong Kong to hush. Um, and again, whether there's substance, he always, he writes in a, it's a, it's an interesting book to read, but there, it's, you know, he tries to make a lot of, connections that may or may not be there. It's just interesting that you had focused on the, or remembered the same stories that he uh, writes about in the, his book. Have you read the book? Maybe, maybe because no. I read the book. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting set of problems. The, the, the movement of wealthy Chinese immigrants. One of the, uh, kind of as an aside, one of the uh, interesting issues is connected to tax. I think it was revealed some years ago now that your average uh, live-in caregiver was paying more taxes than your average business immigrant from, yeah, was, from uh... China or from, or from most other jurisdictions. And the reason for that is it's hinted that, that the, the Chinese or the wealthy business immigrants were evading taxes. And in my opinion, most of them were, they were not paying taxes and they were not evading either because they were not immigrants. They were tie broken uh, back into China by the tax treaty. They never became tax residents. They may have become immigrants, but weren't tax residents of Canada because they were tax residents of China. And that, that remains the case. And I think to the extent that, that the principal applicants or the people with the money are remaining abroad, and particularly if they're doing so in a treaty country like China or Taiwan and Hong Kong now, because uh, it used to be that Taiwan and Hong Kong were not treaty countries. And so it was possible simultaneously for a person to be a tax resident of both jurisdictions. But if you rely on the treaty, uh, then uh, you, you're either one or the other. You don't get to pick. It depends on your yeah. The factual circumstances of your lifestyle and the connections with the, with the two jurisdictions. So switching gears for a sec, you knew Dave Thomas. You were... I still know Dave Thomas. You still know Dave Thomas. Did you... It's going to be a bit of a weird question, but he... Is it safe to say that he wanted to replicate what you were doing in Taiwan in Korea? Um, maybe. And uh, back in the day Korea was also a big thing, uh, it, but it was quite different from Taiwan because in Korea, uh, all of the immigrants, or at least as I understand it, all of the business immigrants had to go, had to submit their applications through one of four or five 
private industry, but government licensed agencies. And so if you wanted to do, uh, as a Canadian immigration lawyer, you want to do immigration from Korea, you had to have a relationship with uh, one of those uh, four consulting companies. And a uh, handsome young man like Dave was e easy to develop relationships in a place like Korea, I think. And he, he, uh, Dave's, Dave's son has been studying in Korea for like four years now. Yeah, I think is, he said he yeah. uh, just got his MBA. So yeah, did yeah. you, at the time, like, did you give him tips? Or he also mentioned that he thought that it was easier to develop an immigration practice outside of a big firm. Um, I don't know if you felt similar or I don't know. Um, yeah, a, a little bit. Back in those days, almost none of the big firms did any immigration. Uh, and two, a couple of things stick in my mind from the medium-sized firm where I articled. One of, one of the senior partners there, I told him I was interested in developing an immigration practice. And he said, you don't want to do that. That's that's a sleazy practice. That's a really sleazy practice. Wow. I, but another partner said to me, "Oh no, have a crack at the immigration practice." His other this other fellow's advice was, "Peter, it doesn't matter what kind of law you practice, as long as you have rich clients." <laughs> so sorry, I'm I'm I've lost. Oh, my just track whether uh, whether you him saying that because I mean you were able to build the practice at. Bullhauser, but I guess he didn't, based from our conversation, think that being with a big firm was the way to go and building a oh, career yeah, practice. Oh yeah, yeah, the big firm thing. Um, the problem with the big firms is, I think Dave mentioned this in his interview. Sometimes, yet with an immigration practice, it's imperative to jump on a plane and fly to some foreign jurisdiction on short notice. And if at the firm you have to get approval from different levels of management to do that, it kind of impairs your ability to respond quickly to the client's needs. Yeah, he did mention that. And in addition to that, you know, I was traveling to Taiwan, running our office back, back and forth across the Pacific about four or five times a year, staying in Taiwan for two weeks at a time coming back. And it was exhausting. I mean, just really exhausting. There are lots of occasions where I've, I'd be on the phone talking to a client at eight or nine o'clock at night in Taiwan, suffering from jet lag. I'd fall asleep. I could hear the client shouting at me on the phone. <laughs> and then I get back to Vancouver, suffering from jet lag, completely bagged. And my partner is some of them saying, oh, why did you have a good holiday in Taiwan? <laughs> well, no, and I look back on it, I've probably done the Trans-Pacific route round trip somewhere between 100 and 150 times and spent roughly four or five years of my life suffering from jet lag. Originally, when I started out doing it, I thought that was great. This is lots of fun. I get to travel and stay in hotels and meet all kinds of interesting people. But it, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard doing that kind of thing. And these some of these immigration lawyers that have offices all over the place and are just constantly traveling. I don't. I can't see how they they can do it. When I was doing it in Taiwan, I had a, you know, we had a, a, a condo that we 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 stayed in. We had a fixed place of business. We had an office, an office manager. I'd get off the plane and my manager she'd have, uh, you know, ten appointments. And I, 
and so I'd have one after another. Everything was was easily organized, but I can't imagine how the, these folks who it's such a different era. Like, yeah, Deanna and I were saying with Dave, like, I've never traveled for work outside of conferences. Yeah. At least outside of the province. Well, you see, the, the, uh, in Taiwan, at least, and the few applications I did in China was kind of the same thing. Um, unlike the consultants, uh, I, I, I insisted on visiting all of my clients at their offices. And I got, went to the factories. And I would usually spend the better part of a day just going over their whole story. And my covering letters were mini biographies. And for me, it was a really edifying process to meet these fascinating people who had done all kinds of amazing things and to see the fruit of what they had developed over often the, the course of decades. Uh, the, the stories were just astonishing. And uh, I learned you know, a, a, a whole lot. And I once asked, uh, my manager and Caffel, I said, do, do, you, do I really need to do this for the covering letters, you guys? Do you think this is helping? And they said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the best part of it because this, this helps us distinguish our files from other folks who are just kind of ticking the boxes and submitting documentation. Hmm. I don't know if that makes any difference these days. I mean, the message I've gotten through litigation from the Department of Justice has sometimes been don't try to avoid putting important information in the cover letter because it might not be read in the mass of documents that visa officers have to quickly flip through. Did you also, I mean, the other thing, did you know Dennis as well? I, I do know Dennis and I've known Dennis for many years. And in fact, we, we went on a business trip together to Brazil and Argentina I wearing my hat as a private banker and he as a Canadian immigration lawyer hmm. together with three Spanish speaking accountants from Vancouver. Yeah. Hmm. That's a yeah, whole he... other story, but I, 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 I uh, like Dennis and uh, in, enjoyed being on the road with him. It was very, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. He was saying that part of the practice used to involve, that's also completely different whining. I don't want to say whining and dining, but, Mm -hmm. sitting down for dinner with uh, visa officers and going through files? Well, it, 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 weird things would happen in, with re regard, regarding the policies. I don't think this was usually reflected in actual amendments to the legislation, but there was a period of about six or eight months, probably in the late 80s, when the visa offices decided that immigration lawyers and consultants were, and I quote, partners in processing. And what had been an adversarial relationship, briefly, temporarily, transformed into a, a cooperative partnership relationship. And I thought it was still like that. And I was making a trip to Hong Kong and I phoned up uh, head of the Hong Kong business section thinking we were still partners in processing. And he said, to me, he said, Peter, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. We're not meeting. We don't talk to any, we don't have any direct phone or face-to-face -face communication with any lawyers or consultants. And I thought, okay, fair enough, Mr. X. Uh, no problem. I'd hope to point out some serious discrepancies in your handling of this particular file, but I'll just do it by correspondence. We'll just get a refusal yeah. and then go to court on it and waste yeah. 
Yeah, well, in this particular case, in this particular case, I happened to wander through the lobby bar of the Marriott Hotel in central Hong Kong and saw the senior visa officer sitting down having martinis with Canada's most famous senior immigration lawyer from Toronto. <laughs> so it yeah. sort of a added another layer to my cynical uh, view of uh, some of our visa officers. Yeah. And incidentally, one of the reasons I, I, I recall now, one of the reasons I decided to start practicing immigration law, I found myself on the phone on one occasion screaming uncontrollably, screaming obscenities at a visa officer who, who had lied to me about something. I won't go into the, the, the details, but I just thought, I, I can't do this anymore because there were such huge discrepancies between, you know, the cases, some, some you know, person X profile is like this and treated just fine, no problems. And another person, identical profile and refused out of hand for no, no, no particularly good reason. So the inconsistency and the capriciousness of the whole process toward the end just annoyed me so much. Yeah. So is the standard of review did it in? Yeah. Well, that, that <laughs> was reasonable standard. That was like the, the, the straw that broke the broke the cam, broke the camels broke the camel's back. Yeah. And I have uh, I have enormous respect for the folks who deal with refugees. Takes a little uh, patience. I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. I wouldn't be, I would, I wouldn't be able to do it because I, I get wrapped up emotionally. Yeah, for sure. So maybe um, uh, just looking at the time, a final-ish question, because you worked, I guess, as immigration lawyer and banker, which <laughs> would you recommend to uh, someone looking at career paths? Well, if, to, to, become, to be a banker, you should, be, you should study courses that re relate to banking. <laughs> um, I didn't. I was hired by a bank, not because of my skills as a banker or as an expert in economics or finance, but because I knew people. And what my boss told me when I started banking, he said, Peter, this business isn't for smart people. This is a business for people who know people. And we know that you know a lot of people. So uh, we'll give you a couple of years at this and pay you a big salary and see what you can, you can do. And it turned out okay. There is a role, I think, for lawyers trained in immigration, especially if they're able to uh, develop expertise in certain other areas. That would be tax and trusts, like our friend from Borden Gladner Gervais. Remember, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, Hans Novak. Yeah, so Hans is a guy who I think is reasonably knowledgeable about immigration and has a big reputation as a tax and, and, and trust lawyer. And people with that sort of combination of expertise often find themselves working for, working in the area known as fiduciary services, setting up asset protection uh, structures for high net worth individuals in the context of large banking organizations. And uh, for hands and people like him, um, that can be very, very lucrative practice. Just knowledge as an immigration lawyer in banking, probably 
not so much. Uh, the advantage being an immigration lawyer is if you've got clients, they're probably your clients. It's your own little business. As the banker, it depends. You know, maybe they're going to your bank, not because of you, but because it's RBC or BMO or, or UBS. And so they're stuck with the brand. But as a lawyer, you're the brand. And that's, that's one of the positive features of that. I can't say what it's like these days in practicing immigration law. I had a, a crack member, Steve, we worked, I was working with Larley Rosenberg briefly, and I realized I was way past my use-by date when I arrived there. I didn't know how to use the technology very well. I was out of date in terms of the, of, of, of the law, and I, I didn't have a clientele. So no matter where you go, what you do, there's going to be an opportunity cost. I would have to say that in my particular case, and this probably will continue to apply a little bit, that is my skill speaking Chinese has probably been as useful as my law degree, both in practicing law and, and in business. Now, that's, that's changed because 40 years ago, there were very few Mandarin-speaking professionals of any kind in Vancouver. And now I think the city is just full of them. I think every, you know, every profession, there's a, there are a lot of young people who are completely bilingual, bicultural Chinese English in the city of Vancouver at any rate. So there's no special advantage in being a Mandarin speaker. Yeah, it probably helps a little bit if you're not Chinese, just the novelty value, what folks like me call the, uh, the white monkey routine. The talking dog routine. No, um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to predict what the future in that or what skills. I don't know if language is as important as skill in immigration law nowadays, although it probably depends on the practice here. Do you have a second language, Deanna? Yeah, I, not that I can practice in, no. I do think the future, like in any ways, I think the future of Canadian immigration looks, well, I've tweeted it before that the Canadian. The future of Canadian immigration is India. Although I tweeted this morning that the largest back, like as far as backlogs of TRV applications in 20, like, so there's just a snapshot on July 8, 2021, the largest inventory of visitor visas were India, followed by Nigeria, followed by China. So, you know, that could just be a function that applications sit in Nigeria, but or it means that um, you know, five to ten years from now, Nigeria could be number two or three source country. Yeah, there's a lot of systemic barrier issues that we did a podcast on last yeah, year sure. that would have to be overdressed. But yeah, I just, I mean, the shame of that is just how many of those are going to end in refusals. And so, um, you know, I've said that this this is an area for litigation. I'm just finding the litigation so. Uh, challenging and frustrating because even when you go back for redetermination, they're they're leading to further refusals. So, and it's uh, slow right now. It's litigation, really, really slow. It's getting really slow. Rule Nine reasons, yeah, is just slow. I think what you hear about in the passport world, where passports take forever, Peter, is replicated across the immigration system right now. Yeah. Well, so presumably that it has an impact on your cash flow then. Mm, no, it ha I mean, so during the pandemic, I think that the people who practiced in just one source country 
some of them were very negatively impacted. I'm thinking of consultants I know who focused on India and for like a year period, it seems like everything in India froze. If you just had study permits, there were almost none in 2020. I think if you had a diverse source country and diverse program practice, it hasn't changed too much. It has for me just because um, so many of the areas that I have been practicing in have just been so stagnant, like the caregiver program kind of drying up, express entry being so choked um, and litigation just, it's become hard for me to recommend litigation in so many, for so many reasons, just because of the slowness and because of this kind of merry-go-round of refusals. Um, you know, so anyways, uh, that's just been my experience. I think it will kind of come around again, but um, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's my reaction. All right, quick question. Uh, the, the, uh, the caregiver program, mm. they can still come as caregivers, but they can't transition into PR status. Is that the way it is? Not or? really. Um, the thing with the caregiver program is that you can no longer apply for an LMIA-based work permit from abroad. Um, so the only way to apply for the caregiver program is to apply for permanent residence from the outset. Uh, and that program has, that new pilot program has been in existence since June, 2019. And in my own practice, I do a lot of these. I haven't received a single approval of a work permit for a person abroad or for permanent residency since that program launched in 2019. The way I describe it, Peter, you, so the new program is you can come as a permanent resident. You just can't come as a permanent resident. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Yeah. They just don't process it. Straight out of cash 22. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like they're killing it um, like invisibly. What, and why is that? Uh, I really don't know. Um, I think that um, they like first and the other part part of this issue is that they have put a quota on the program so child care providers it's 200 2175 per year and so the child and then this in for elder care persons with disabilities and so they capped out of the child care providers within two weeks of, of the year and so no further applications. And that quota is shared by people who are in Canada on work permits and are trying to regularize their status and those who are trying to get in. So if you've missed the quota for the year, you can't even apply for permanent residency, even if you've already finished your 24 months. Like it's just, a, it's a complete gong show. Um, you go to the immigration website and you look up the caregiver program. What is the processing time? It will say no processing time available. This is a new program. Not enough data is available yet to calculate a processing time. Basically, because after three years, they haven't processed any. It's insane. Right. And how about, how about um, uh, healthcare workers? Any special programs for them? Not anymore. Um, you know, they would have to apply as provincial nominees or express entry, um, assuming that they get a score high enough. Um, but since the TR to PR program was uh, ended, there's been nothing special for them unless through one of the provincial nominee programs. Yeah, there was briefly, it was like a capped, if you're a refugee claimant and you work in healthcare, right. there's, an, there's a lot of niche programs right now. There's even a yeah. program if you're an out of status construction worker 
in the greater Toronto area, there's a program for that. Not if you're out of status and a construction worker in Vancouver, but if you just happen to be in Toronto, there's a program. You see, I'm thinking to back to the day when I was traveling a lot in China and I'd walk into the office of some big immigration consulting company in Shanghai, say, and discover that the aggregate knowledge that existed within their office was more than the aggregate knowledge of any other individuals I could find either immigration lawyers or or, or immigration officers, because they would get information about all of the programs, provincial nominee programs, investor programs, entrepreneur programs, living caregiver. They, they would have it all aggregated. They were doing such big volumes. And I thought, wow, these people have a broader, more comprehensive overview of our system than anybody in the system. And then you have, you know, a new uh, minister coming along every, every two years. And after he, after he ceases to be the minister and doesn't get reelected next time he emerges as an immigration consultant. Now I think a lot of the like program selection, um, you know, there's some consulting firms and law firms that just someone fills out a questionnaire and it automatically populates which programs they may qualify for. But I mean, like the big change now though, is that the, the biggest programs are uh, just like express entry where just fill out an online questionnaire and the system picks you. Yeah. So that brings to mind another topic, which is the propensity of some of the consultants to very cynically decide that they'll make money from the process, knowing there there will not be a positive result. I, I had dinner last night with somebody who basically said her consultant friend, that's that's a business model. She yeah. collects she collects ten thousand dollars for the application, doesn't make any promises, says there's going to be another fifty thousand that's payable on success. Uh, six months later, she goes back and says, "Couldn't succeed. Thanks for the ten thousand. Here's the fifty thousand back." That, that's one model. And then the most spectacular example of that, I ran into this in Taiwan years ago. I was in our office in Taiwan, and I got a phone call from some Taiwanese people who were in, I think it was Minneapolis, when Canada had a visa office in Minneapolis. And this group of uh, 15 Taiwanese families had showed up at the Canadian visa office in Minneapolis for their immigration interview. And the immigration officer uh, said, uh, we don't have any record of your application. And what had happened is this Hong Kong Chinese consultant, a very enterprising young lady, I never met her, but I saw her work. Her MO was to get a bunch of retain, go to Taiwan, get a bunch of retainers from people in some small town in Taiwan, tell them they were applying under the uh, investor category, submit an application to the visa office, so there would be the beginning of an application submitted, but not a perfected set of documents. And um, then, she would forge a an interview letter uh-huh. a, and part of the letter would say, please forward your $150,000 to oh such gosh. and such an account. And so they would send the money into this account and your interview is on such and such a day. The whole fa- This is when I think the entire families had to be interviewed. So the, the whole family would jump on a plane and fly. In this case, this, she had them sent to Minneapolis. And then she'd leave town 
having stolen from the 11 or so families, 150,000 each plus the processing fees. And uh, I was amazed because the families phoned me on a referral because I was in Taiwan and they were in Minneapolis. <laughs> and uh, I thought, wow, that's interesting. So we ended up getting retained by half of the families and managed to process their applications. But about three or four years after that, I was in Taiwan at an immigration seminar down in Southern Taiwan. And one of those clients whom had, had, he had been cheated by this woman went to this immigration uh, symposium and there were different people standing up and giving presentations and this guy st stood up. I couldn't remember him, but he stood up and gave me a testimonial. He said, I was ripped off by a consultant. My friend Peter here processed the application all succeeded. And I thought, wow, well, thanks very much for that. I appreciate it. Um, and afterwards, he came up to me and he said, by the way, that woman who cheated us all, I said, yeah. He said, well, she's here. She's giving a presentation right now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. She's still ripping people off. And I said, well, did, did you get your money back? Did you sue her? Was you? He said, no, no, I didn't sue her. I just did it the old-fashioned way. I got some friends with baseball bats. <laughs> um, but then years after that, like fast forward 10 years, and I was a private banker in Hong Kong. And a couple came into my office and they had been victimized by the same woman in, from mainland China. She was still doing this. And I was thinking, you know, every instance, she's probably squirreling away a, a, a million or so dollars because the letters, it was all the same thing. You know, a letter, a forged letter of interview letter together with the direction to remit the money to her own bank account somewhere. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a whole lot of these kinds of scenarios in my day. Uh, sometimes it's very common to, uh, especially with the low income workers where the, the overseas support ends up feeling a whole lot like human trafficking. Yeah. And one thing, I mean, like at least on the inside Canada stuff, I think Richard Curlin's talked about this is that if someone reports that uh, you know, they may have committed some sort of misrepresentation through the strenuous assistance of a ghost consultant or a consultant or a lawyer. There isn't really any reward for that. In fact, and it's more likely than not that the only person who may face consequences is the person who yeah, reports it because then they're sure. just confessing to misrep. So that type of stuff then just gets to continually be perpetuated. Yeah. I remember actually when I was doing, um, when I was working not for profit for uh, the caregiver um, community and I was doing so much of this type of work and I was in very regular contact with the visa office in Manila and I found out that they had, because they were like regular offenders that we were dealing with the same agencies over and over again, exploiting um, in-home caregivers. And I learned that there was a stack of files on the desk at the visa office of agencies that were repeatedly being told that they were, um, they were charging 10 and $15,000 bogus job offers, you know, caregivers having been assaulted and abused by their employers and all of this sort of thing. And there was just, 
you know, there was nothing happening and the workers were still being, you know, stopped at the port of entry on their arrival into Canada and being found inadmissible for misrepresentation because when they called the employer, it turned out to be a bogus job and they would still be sending them back, you know, and it was just, it was driving me absolutely crazy at the time. But, uh, you know, it's not my world right now, but I, I, you know, it's just, it was always astonishing to me that it was the workers that was take, were taking it in the chin and being sent back with these huge debts and these big problems. So I, I don't imagine any of that has really changed. Wow. How do those people sleep at night? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Well, it was very nice. I think it was a very interesting conversation. We covered a lot of uh, very diverse subjects. 